We've been walking through the book of Revelation and we've been verse by versing it. Chapter one, here we are in chapter three, and we're in the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, we've gone through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Some things to remember, some big points to remember, is that this book is primarily prophetic. And the more I think about this book, and the more I study this book, the more I realize how dumb the New Testament church has been that has said we're no longer prophetic like the old prophets. Because this book is exactly like the Old Testament prophets. Exactly the same tone and tenor, opportunities for glorification or judgment, turn to repentance, turn and repent, or it's going to end poorly. It's exactly like the Old Testament prophets. It's a message that doesn't sound really friendly oftentimes, and it's to the church, and it's only about 40 years after the existence of the church. And we have to remember that, because often in our life in Christ, we can feel comfortable, and we can press the cruise control button, and we think we're just going to slide into home plate eternally, but this book tells us something quite differently, that heaven and hell are real, they matter, and God wants us to end up in the right place. So this is Sardis, this is um, the church of Sardis, and Jesus is talking about it. Uh, This church is asleep at the wheel. This is the church of the Bible Belt in America, okay? This is, what I wa- this is how I want you to think of this church. A, a, a testimony, a name of kind of being the guys, really carrying the thing, being famous Christians once upon a time, but where are they now? You've fallen asleep while you're driving your car. That's the condition of the current church. You ready? Let's read this. Okay, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. The being asleep at the wheel is a funny thing, and I don't know... Um, in New York City, we don't drive much, and if we were to drive from, you know, lower Manhattan to upper Manhattan, it's unlikely that we would be asleep at the wheel. You're just not in the car for long enough. There's too many distractions. There's too many lights. It's too active to be asleep at the wheel. 
And I don't know about you, I've almost been asleep at the wheel. I've driven across the country probably three times, and you usually get caffeine and like sunflower seeds to keep you active. You got to stay awake. You got to, and then you have like canker sores all over your mouth. You feel like you have, you know, some kind of sick disease. But you have to stay active or else you fall asleep when you're on a long, long road and you're seeing the same thing over again. And the Christians in Sardis have been following Jesus for some time and they have been falling asleep at the wheel. The problem is they're wealthy and they're well off and they have an amazing reputation from the past. And they're running on those fumes in their gas tank and they're believing that's enough to get them to where they need to go. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, if you're a regular, you know this is one of my favorite uh, miscontextualized scripture. Or do, you not, or do you show contempt for the riches and kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There's a conjunction there. The, ch first, the church has forgotten to add the conjunction there. His kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. Jesus is talking, or Jesus is speaking through Paul. Paul is speaking to the church and he's saying this phrase, God's kindness and goodness, his forbearance, which means he's, he's not exercising judgment. He's forbearing himself. He's pressing pause on the judgment sword. His forbearance and patience, that's a conjoined concept. They're stopping judgment from coming to you because he loves you so much. But if you continue in your stubbornness, it's the same principle here applied to Sardis. If you continue to drive asleep at the wheel, you will crash the car. It's a guarantee. So let's jump into this and let's talk about our primary interpretive method here. The way Jesus appears to the churches speaks to us about what that church needs, right? Or what that church is lacking. Jesus doesn't arbitrarily appear to these churches. All seven churches, he appears in a different way to talk about the things that he wants to bring them. The, the way he wants to supplement where they're at. And he appears this way because that's how we need him. And it says this to the church, the angel of the church of Sardis, right? The words of him, and Jesus appears in these two ways, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This sounds very obscure and apocalyptic and weird. We went through stars in Ephesians. In the, to, the, to the letter of the church of Ephesus in the last chapter, we said that Jesus was holding stars. This language is different, that he contains the power over the entire cosmos, the angelic and demonic realms. That's what we said these things, the stars referenced, the, the power of angelic and demonic warfare that's over the world. Jesus is in control of it all. And the people of Sardis have fallen asleep under the principalities of their time. 
They've been lulled to sleep by the demonic principalities that are ruling the city, and we'll get there in a second. But Jesus is saying, I come to you, and I need you to know that I'm the one who rules all of the heavenlies, all of the stars, all of the angels, all of the demons. I'm the one in control. I'm the one in charge. You're not standing out and alone subject to the will and power of these entities. I am the God that rules all of this. It's an incredible picture. And so it's seven stars, and then he has seven spirits. Again, we saw this in Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits of God that were at the throne of God. Now, this can sound kind of crazy and bizarre and apocalyptic. Um, Again, when we're talking about I thought there was one Holy Spirit. How, is, how are there seven Holy Spirits? We have to remember that Revelation is all about symbolism. And when we take Revelation, we forget it's about symbolism. When we see a number seven, we're like, oh my gosh, do I only have one of the seven Holy Spirits? And then we create our own weird cult, like three of seven. But no, it's about the completeness or fullness of the Holy Spirit and his life being manifest into us. Isaiah chapter 11 actually is the first place in the scripture that refers to the seven spirits of God. And let's read that real quick. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. One, the spirit of wisdom. Two, and of understanding. Three, the spirit of counsel. Four, the spirit of might. Five, the spirit of knowledge, six, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven. These seven differentiated manifestations of the spirit of the Lord. In Anglican theology and Catholic theology, some of, the, some of the order of those seven are a little bit different. One of them says piety, and there's a whole system of belief around receiving these spirits and then walking in these spirits. Something that I was thinking of... Um, though, is how many Christians that we have that aren't walking with the Spirit of God. So in King's Church, we believe that when you come to Christ, you're sealed with the Spirit, but the baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit is a secondary, or is most of the time, the vast majority of the time, a secondary encounter where you pray, get hands laid upon you and you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there's this kind of, there's this kind of uh, theological dichotomy where it's like, well, are, am I saved without the Holy Spirit? No, you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit. But have you been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you walking in the life force of the Holy Spirit? Are any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifest in your life? And some of these gifts are tongues and healings and miracles and all of these things that we believe in and we see here at King's Church. But some of the other gifts that we miss are wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. And I think that we have a church in America that's highly academic that has very little of the the spirits of God living inside of them. And so they look at the scripture and they're totally confused because they don't have from God a spirit of wisdom and understanding that God actually opens up mysteries. And that especially happens in dark and secular countries where the people of God are placed. Joseph is given a spirit of discernment and understanding and wisdom that he can take apart the dreams of Pharaoh, put them back together, and interpret exactly what they mean. 
They're confounding, confusing situations about what am I supposed to do with the economy of this nation? Famine is supposed to come. And Joseph has a spirit. It's not just book smarts. It's the spirit of God that gives him wisdom and revelation and understanding about how to counsel the king for the blessing of God to be on the nation. So it ultimately blesses the people of God. Same thing happens, exact same thing happens with Daniel. And we talked about the same thing happens with Esther. That God wants to, he wants his people to live alive. <laughs> now, and here, listen to the contrast. Sardis is asleep at the wheel. They don't know it's even going by their peripheral vision. The sons and daughters of God are alive. They're awake to the signs of the times. When they see things in the world, they say, what is the Holy Spirit doing? Rather than saying, I'm just asleep to it all. I'll just try to be nice to my neighbor and hope they punch my ticket when I die. Watch as this plays out here. So, so Sardis is... A, is known as the reputational city by all these scholars that talk about Sardis. What does that mean? It means that they were once super famous. They once had an incredible reputation. They're known for being the first city, allegedly, in the ancient world to discover the process of dyeing wool at all. So they get massively wealthy. They're, they're known for four things, essentially. Dyeing wool, getting massively wealthy, minting coins, the first nation that had like a mint press for coins, allegedly, city um, in, in what is now Turkey. There, the third thing was it was one of the first cities in the, in the world where divisions of class were based primarily on wealth. Now, if you understand the history of the world, divisions of class were generally based upon your, heredit, your, 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 your ancestry, whose child you were, but because there was so much wealth that was coming into Sardis, class differentiation began on how much cash they had. And the fourth thing that was really interesting is that the ancients or the archaeologists, they, they said they found gold dust in the sand of Sardis, which one represents their wealth, but from a biblical perspective can represent the beautiful and valuable things of God being trampled on. Here's verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, I, I have to say this like every time I'm preaching to Revelation. This is preaching, like John is a prophet prophesying to the church. It's not like some amazing... Billy Graham crusade at a Yankees game speaking to the world. John is talking to the church and saying, if you don't square up, Jesus is going to come against you. And then we should say, wow, I don't want that to happen. And this is what we were sharing about in worship, 2 Timothy 1.6. Remember what you have first received. Paul says this to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am convinced, Timothy, that it's in you as well. The next verse says this, 
For this reason, I, am, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So he's saying, Timothy, the gifts that God placed in you, they're not at the flame level that they should be. Timothy, pastor of the church, leader of the church, you're walking, serving God, leading the people, but the flame is not where it should be. Remember your grandmother and your mother. Why is that? Why is that? Because you're remembering the things at first. You're remembering the first things. What are the first things you remember? I remember my grandmother, how much she loved Jesus. I remember my mom, how much she loved Jesus. Steph and my grandmother was this insane prayer warrior, a lady that prayed more than anyone I ever met. And that's, those kind of things remind me who I am in Christ. And that's why it's the same language here in Sardis. Go back to those first things. In marriage counseling, when a husband and wife are on the rocks, the counselor says to the husband and wife, do the things you did when you first met. Just hold hands. Go to a movie. They're like trying to fix their sex life and everything's broken and there's all kinds of confusion and they don't know if they're even together. And the counselor says, just do the things you did at first. Just hold hands again. Allow the flame to be stirred up on the inside of you. And then the flame has a life of its own. Actually, this word, <laughs> stir up the fire here in Timothy, it actually means living thing. Because once you stir it up, the life, the fire takes on a life of its own and begins to grow inside of you. You don't have to slave over it. You just have to do the initial stirring and the flame will leap up again. And that's the promise that Jesus has to Sardis. He's not saying, I'm giving you a load that's too heavy for you to bear. I'm just asking you to stir yourself up. Isn't that amazing? Okay, and here's the thing. So Timothy gets it he, he, from Paul. And so there's a, dormant, there's a dormant gift of God inside of him that he hasn't exercised in a while. And this is Romans eleven twenty nine for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So even if you don't stir them up, they're still down there inside of you. Stir them up. Maybe you were, you were filled with the Holy Spirit when you were a younger person and you prayed in tongues for six months and you're just like, eh, I don't want to do that. Again, stir it up. Stir up the gifts. That's what Jesus is saying. Maybe you prayed for people and somebody got healed and then you just had, went through an experience and said, I'm not doing it anymore. Stir it up. Stir up the gift. Let the Holy Spirit come to life in you again. So that's the first thing. Re remember what you have received. One, Sardis. Two, two is remember what you have heard. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. So it's both this experience that we have with God, but then the first testimony of the story of God that sparked something inside of us. Remember what you received and those things you initially heard. My friend, uh, Charles Stock, I go to his, you know, I've been to his church a number of times and his conferences and they're always amazing and he tells his story his testimony of salvation every time like it's the first time the the story of God changing of his life still has incredible power tell your story of faith okay 
Verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. If you will not wake up, Sardis, if you will not stir up the gift inside of you, if you will not remember the testimony initially given to you, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this is a phrase we've used in the past called the comings of Christ. Because we live in this world where, you know, Tim LaHaye and, and uh, bad B-rated actors give us films about Jesus coming back and we're all like, our underwear's left and we're all in heaven. But Revelation seems to indicate the comings of Christ. Not the one, not the one final end time coming where God is wrapping up the universe, but Revelation is a letter to the entire church for the history of the church. It wasn't just supposed to be pulled out right before Jesus comes back. It's a prophetic letter to the entire church. There's not, a, there's not any book of the Bible where we're like, we don't need this for a thousand years. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work like that. It's for the whole church. And there are comings of Christ in judgment and in salvation in different times and epochs. And so we share this message, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? And I said, no, it's not. I said, it is a mark of a beast. And that was very confusing to people. And I said, throughout the, re- the book of Revelation, the beast represents secular power in control, dominating force, a soulless beast, mankind at maximal power without spirit of God. And its mark is control over human beings. And I said, it's certainly a mark of a beast, but it's not the mark of the beast. If I would have said it was the mark of the beast, I would have sold way more books. Okay. (laughs) Somebody clapping. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So this is one of the ways we know that there are comings of Christ is because this is a conditional sentence. It says this, if you will not wake up, then I will come. That means if you wake up at the wheel, Jesus will not come in judgment towards you. I think the, the key picture is most Christians live their life betting on the grace of God, and they're like, I'm just going to keep sinning in this area because it seems like I keep getting forgiven. But if you knew Jesus was about to show up tonight, you would clean up your act. You would move out of your boyfriend's house. You would throw the blunt out the window. You would deal with the sin in your life if you knew Jesus was coming tonight. Am I right? Clearly. Clearly that's the case. I'd throw my kids out the window. I'd be fasting and praying. I'd turn on Jason Upton to 10, volume 10. I was thinking about this song by my buddy. My buddy wrote, and it says, If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And I was thinking, that's true for the repentant, but it's not true for the unrepentant. Grace is not an ocean for the unrepentant. It is a lake. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. King James Version says, There is a cup of wrath in the hand of the Lord, foaming with wine. 
the cross didn't happen and, and God was like, I'm, I'm, no more judgment, the end. Revelation actually expressly tells us God is still judge. I want to I jump into this thief in, thief in the night thing because one of the reasons we're going through Revelation is there's a lot of confusion about these phrases, the thief in the night. I remember, I think there's a book publishing company called The Thief in the Night. Is that right? There's a magazine. There's this thief in the night thing that Jesus is coming back in 20 seconds and the world is over. I, I want to be clear about something. We don't believe that Jesus is coming back in 20 seconds, but in your life, he may be coming back in 20 seconds. You may go home tonight and die on the way home. This is New York City. You may get stabbed in the subway on the way home. That's, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's, it's not funny. It's funny. It's not funny. And you may receive the coming of Christ in your life. I want to read this. In Matthew 25, 26, it says this. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out there. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. This is my buddy that's always like, I, there's a deal in Iran. He's like, well, it's time. Jesus is coming back. There's a deal in Iran. Ah! I'm like, but there's been deals in Iran for the history of the world, man. What's going on here? If anyone tells you he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or if he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You will not be missing it. Verse 28. Wherever there is a carcass, there are the vultures, and they will gather. Have you ever read this scripture before, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Does anybody read this scripture? Does anybody have a Bible? Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Has anyone just been like, I'm going to flip to a random scripture, Bible dice. You know Bible dice? And you get this scripture and you're like, what in God's name is this, you know? <laughs> Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. Whenever something very intense like death happens, there are signs in the sky. When something is about to die the vultures show up in the sky. One of the ways hunters know how to find food in the woods, when the hunters are out, the vultures will start circling around the deer even before the vultures get there, or even before the hunter gets there, because the vultures know that death is coming soon. Wherever there is judgment, wherever, when, when it's the time for the judgment of God and the wrath of God to be poured out on the world, the vultures will be in the sky. The signs will be abundant. You will not miss them. Mic drop, going home. Let's all go home now. Let's all go home. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its life. Let's skip to um, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Which is just an incredible verse. I mean, that, that 
only the Father has, he's in control of the times and seasons because we always want to know, God, when? When am I going to get married? When am I going to get the job deal? When am I going to get the thing? There are some things, timing related, that are only in the purview of the Father. And you don't get to know them. You get to walk in faith and trust God. 37, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day or what hour the Lord will come. Remember, church, we're talking about the comings of Christ. 43. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. The coming of Jesus in your life in blessing or in judgment, will come at an hour you're not ready for it. And so we're supposed to be prepared. Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, I love you. I have dominion over all the angels and demons. I have the power of my Holy Spirit to fill you with discernment and wisdom and make you alive in Christ. You must wake up and be aware of what's happening because you do not know when your day will come to an end. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There's like four or five times in this letter to Sardis, more than any other letter to any other the ch- church, the word names is used, that they have held to the name of Jesus, And we're going to see that part of what the Christians that fell away were doing, that they had rejected the testimony, the name of Jesus. The second thing was that they had not soiled their garments, which is a reference to idolatry and sexual sin that was related to the worship of Sybil, who was the uh, secular deity of the time and was worshipped in the city of Sardis. Um, there's a contrast here in the gift of God and the reward of God. You still have a few names, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will, this is one of the rewards, they will walk with me in white. And the contrast is, instead of Jesus sneaking in your house when you're not prepared, you are walking with him. The person that is actively walking with Jesus, he doesn't come like a thief in the night to. He's not your enemy, a thief in the night, when you're walking with him. And the people of Sardis are called to either walk with Jesus, it's, there's, there's only two doors, there's only two roads, a narrow one and a wide one. You can either walk with Jesus or he will come like a thief in the night. Those are the two options. You have no other. White garments for those who held fast 
to his name, Revelation 6, 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, the testament to the name of Jesus. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer, just like the, the, the Christians in Sardis will be given a white robe. This is an incredible portion of scripture. The, the, the saints in heaven are not crying out, Lord, forgive everyone in the world. The saints in heaven are not crying out from that side of the grave, God, just give them all grace. They're saying, Lord, judge of the world, how long will it be until you avenge our blood? This is why this is a prophetic book. This is why this is a book of prophecy to wake up this church and stir her from apathy and, and, and slumber to remind her that God is a God of mercy, yes, but he's a God of justice and judgment. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name. Remember, I just said names, name, 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 and I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. Part of what Beale says that um, they're not doing is they're not walking with the Holy Spirit. They're not a testimony of Jesus anymore. They've stopped evangelizing and telling people about Jesus. And I've seen it happen a million times. We've all been to churches where like there's nobody evangelizes, nobody shares about Jesus, nobody declares the testimony of Jesus. It's a, a picture of the believer heading to sleep. It's a picture of the believer not caring about all, it's Rip Van Winkle falling asleep. God, I'm so happy with what you've given me. You're such a good God. You're so blessed. The people of Sardis, that, you know, this incredibly wealthy town, they're incredibly blessed. They come into the presence of God with fire. Their inception is exciting. They have a great reputation. And then they just lay back on their laurels and fall asleep and forget about the world around them and a just and good God. And they become ashamed of Jesus. Romans 1.15 Luke 9. Uh, I don't have much time, so I want to hit this last point real quick. Because it says this, it says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Your name being in the book of life is about getting saved. It's about giving your life to Jesus, him being the Lord of your life, your name being in his eternal record for all of time. Uh, the book of life, actually, this is not the first time that it appears in the Bible. The book of life appears five times in the book of Revelation, but the first time it appears, it appears in the book of Daniel. And if you've been following along, Daniel and Revelation are intertwined, essentially intertwined. There's all kinds of corollary pictures and elements that we see in both books. But in Daniel, it says in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But then, at that time, your people, 
Everyone whose name is found written in the book of life will be delivered. Here we're in chapter 3 of Revelation, but then chapter 20 of Revelation, it says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. There are, there is the book of life, and there are other books before the Lord. And the books were opened. Another book of open, which is the book of life, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And this is, again, a symbol... Uh, pictorial symbolism of God knowing everything you've ever done, every word you've ever said, and if your name is not found in the book of life, you will be judged according to each and every deed. And because God is perfectly just, eternally good, you will be punished for every sin. The other crazy thing about the book of life is the names that are in it were written before the world began. So for those of us whose names are in the book of life, God was dreaming about you and planning about you and thinking about you before the foundations of the world. We live this, you know, in this kind of like material evolutionary context where the, like the universe is just a gigantic vast waste of space and we're just kind of a lucky ball that's floating around the world and we're kind of like this kind of accident that's going to puff away and the, and the universe will remain forever. The world will continue to remain for eons and humans will nuke each other. According to God's story, he was thinking about you and planning about you before the foundations of the world. Revelation 17, 8. And the beast, that you saw, uh, the beast that you saw was us and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless piss and pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth, look at this, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. We'll go into that symbolism a little bit later. It's pretty exciting stuff. But the point is here that God has the names written from the foundations of the earth. The other really crazy thing about the book of life and the promise to the church of Sardis is this scary part here. And it says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The connotation is that though God planned on being your friend from the foundation of the earth, that he dreamed about you, that before he established the earth on its pinions, you were in his heart and in his mind, your name can still be blotted out. Church of Sardis, your name, even though right now is in the book of life, it can still be blotted out. The promise is that your name would not be blotted out. And then Jesus says to the one who conquers, he will be clothed in white garments. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God 
says to the churches. And Jesus comes to the church of Sardis. They have this incredible reputation and they've been asleep at the wheel. And he says, stir up this gift. Remember the things at first. Remember your testimony. Remember the laying on of hands. Wake back up. I don't want your name to be blotted out of the book. I've been dreaming about you from the beginning. I've been planning you and I and this insane adventure. You've been in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Stir up the gift that's been given to you. Jesus is saying it to the church. And it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the Lord says to the churches. I'm more familiar with this language. Uh, Worship team, you can come up. Because this is the same language that ends every book or every letter to all of the seven churches. And it's the symbolic language that Jesus says over and over through the gospels. I'm talking in pictures. And if you get it and it moves your heart, you'll respond to it. If your heart is hard, you won't see it. You won't have an ear to hear. You won't have eyes to say. You'll say, that's definitely not me. God will keep forgiving me. No problem. No problem. But that's the whole point. You don't know when the thief comes if you're not walking with him. You don't know when judgment will come. And if it's not the end of your life, what if it's just the hardening of your heart? What if it's, I don't even know the day that my heart will harden and I turn away from God and I stop walking with him, which is the promise, the gift that comes to the church of Sardis. If the book of Revelation is only about the end times, the last 20 years before the earth ends, why do we need to read it? But it's not. It's a letter to all of us. It's a prophetic declaration to every one of us in every age of the church. A reminder to live for a God that's dreamed about us from before the foundations of the earth. A God that wants to walk with us. God of the universe, creator of all things, wants to walk with you and with me. He doesn't want to come in as a thief in the night. He wants to walk with us. So God, will you, will you stir up the gift inside of us, God? Will you give us the courage? Will you awaken us in the night, Lord? Will you remind us in the morning, God, to get on our knees and stir the gifts up? Declare the testimony of Jesus in our life again. That when the world goes by and things pass us, we're not asleep to it, but we're walking and living in a, a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and discernment and understanding. And the Holy Spirit is filtering the things in our life. And it causes us to give you glory and praise, to live righteously before you, to not fall asleep because of the blessing that you've given us, to not rely on our parents' salvation, but to stir up the gift that you've given to us. Come on, church, why don't you stand with me?